0: Episode 76 Never Trust, Always Verify, Even Your Allies. Practices for Ending the Dark Age. The post on which this podcast episode is based was a really difficult one for me to write. I thought long and hard about how to write it, whether I should even write it at all. Some people are no doubt going to be offended by it because I'm critiquing people they admire and challenging ideas they believe in. Others will no doubt accuse me of sowing division within the ranks of the so called COVID dissidents. So be it. Given that I've spent the last few weeks, the last few posts and podcast episodes delving into Steve Patterson's dark age thesis, discussing the factors that lead societies into dark ages, and conversely, the attitudes and practices that mitigate against the proliferation of, as Steve Patterson describes them, shockingly bad ideas that become orthodoxy, I feel morally obliged to put my money where my mouth is. In last week's episode, I shared some of Richard Feynman's thoughts on the mindset of the true scientist, namely that he or she relentlessly attacks every hypothesis from every conceivable angle to find its weaknesses and either modify it to strengthen its predictive value or discard it if it is not fit for purpose. If the hypothesis survives these attacks, it will advance towards the status of a theory. In a few cases that involve predictions of behavior in the natural world, it might even attain the status of a scientific law. As I've noted previously in a post and podcast episode titled Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushes Turned True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 3, this mindset that characterises good scientists is fundamentally unnatural to human beings. We like to be right. We prefer to win arguments than lose them. We value displaying loyalty to our friends and allies over honestly telling them that their opponent's arguments were stronger than theirs. But if we want to develop high-quality ideas that will help to pull us out of the present dark age and give us the best chance of co-creating institutions and practices that promote human flourishing, we need to consciously build our mental muscles to overcome the sloppy thinking habits that produce bad ideas. As a practitioner, an educator, and a writer, I aim to help my clients, students, and readers to develop rigorous thinking and research habits while I hone my own. With all that said, the impetus for the post on which this podcast episode was based was a post by the author of the Forgotten Side of Medicine Substack, who goes by the pen name A Midwestern Doctor. I've subscribed to this stack for quite some time, and I find A Midwestern Doctor, which I'll henceforth abbreviate to AMD, to be exceptionally insightful. We have previously had productive interactions in the comments section of both of our stacks. However, as is inevitably the case, we have divergences of opinion on certain matters. AMD's post, What Can Statins Teach Us About the COVID 19 Vaccines, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode, drew parallels between the behaviour of the medical pharmaceutical industrial complex with respect to the prescription of statins and to COVID 19 injections. It made many excellent points about the dangers of statin drugs and their lack of benefit for the vast majority of patients to whom they're prescribed, with which I wholeheartedly agree. And by the way, so does one of my favourite websites for quickly assessing whether the benefits of a medical intervention outweigh its risks, a website called the NNT, which stands for the number needed to treat. You can check out their assessments of statins for persons in various risk categories. I've linked to their page on statins in the post accompanying this podcast episode. However, I did notice a couple of statements which I judged to be questionable, and since AMD had explicitly stated his willingness, I'm assuming that AMD is a he, although I could be wrong on this, anyway, his willingness to engage with commenters who disputed his views, I posted four statements that he made in that article on statins and COVID-19 vaccines that I judged to be false or misleading, and presented evidence against them. His response was not what I had anticipated, which disappointed me. I'm not going to dwell on that, because the purpose of this post is not to diss AMD, whom I respect despite this rather unpleasant interaction. But at this point in the proceedings, another reader of The Forgotten Side of Medicine, who goes by the marvellous moniker of Satan's doorknob, a name that makes me laugh every time I say it out loud, weighed in with the following very thoughtful comment. And just a further note for clarity, AMG had referred in his replies to my comments to the writings of Dr Malcolm Kendrick. So here is Satan's doorknob's comment. Quote, I'm just a layman, but one who's read all of Kendrick and a good bit more. I observe on both sides of the current exchange, there's a good bit of professional jealousy in plain evidence. A problem all people have is the strong attachment to beliefs. They are not easily changed, even when presented with conflicting evidence. Being a professional doesn't exempt one from such traits. This is even more a problem when evidence may point in different directions, as is surely the case with something as complex as nutrition and illness. Nonetheless, I can offer tutors some citations from Kendrick. You're free to research his sources as you see fit. Seven Country Study has 11 hits in Kendrick's earliest work, The Great Cholesterol Con. And here is where Satan's doorknob actually quotes the great cholesterol con, Ansel Keyes and his famous seven country study. Keyes looked at saturated fat consumption in seven countries and found a straight line relationship between heart disease, cholesterol levels and saturated fat intake. The seven countries were Italy, Greece, the former Yugoslavia, the Netherlands, Finland, USA and Japan. Why these particular seven countries? He could have chosen another seven and demonstrated the exact opposite. He are my seven countries, Finland, And satan's doorknob noted that finland was actually in both lists but he confirmed that that's how it appears in the e-book and i further confirmed that by looking at the uh, archive version of kendrick's book so the seven actually eight countries that Kendrick stated would demonstrate the exact opposite relationship between saturated fat and heart disease risk were Finland, Israel, the Netherlands. Actually, again, that occurs in both lists, Germany, Switzerland, France, and Sweden. What do you mean I can't choose my own countries? That's not fair. Keys did. That's the end of the quote from Kendrick within Satan's Doorknobs comment. And then in The Clot Thickens, which is another work of Malcolm Kendricks, Keys comes in for additional dressing down. So a quote from The Clot Thickens. Have you ever heard of the Minnesota Coronary Study or the Sydney Diet Heart Study? Most haven't. Both date to the early 1970s and were not published for decades. They only saw the light of day due to dogged investigators finding the original data. Both studies, done to high standards, showed that replacing saturated fat with unsaturated led to worse outcomes. And guess who was the lead on the former study? I think it is important to mention that the lead investigator of the MCE, that is the Minnesota Coronary Experiment Study, was the one and only Ansel Keys. I wonder why the study was not published, end quote. Again, that's the end of the quote from Kendrick's book within Satan's Doorknob's comment. And then Satan's Doorknob inserted a link to a study by Ramsden et al. called Re-Evaluation of the Traditional Diet Heart Hypothesis Analysis of Recovered Data from Minnesota Coronary Experiment and a link to the BMJ um, article. Satan's Doorknob goes on to say, For my own amusement, I discovered there is a website called sevencountrystudy.com. And Satan's doorknob goes on to write Now, here I admit that I've done little exploration of this site's underlying claims. I'm just an outsider. But the study began in 1956 and has continued to the present day. Okay, it's one of the very few long term studies. Surely it deserves its own website. But recall the death grip attachment to professional status and sincerely held beliefs I spoke of earlier? I suspect that those are a major factor here. Not to mention well over half a century of funding, salaries, probably contributions from industries with vested interests, reputation. At stake, and so on. My point is that only a fool would expect scientific impartiality at this site, or Kendrick's book for that matter. A truly impartial observer with no dog in the fight, which, if one is honest, is a pretty darned rare occurrence, would begin with the assumption that everybody has a hidden agenda and will skew the facts to suit his own perspective. It's necessary to weigh all available evidence on its own merits. There's a lot of money riding on the issue and who's right, what's true and what's not. Isn't it reasonable to be just the least bit sceptical of any and all claims? Anyway, hope I've been helpful. If you're really curious about the anti-Keys arguments, Kendrick's books are a great starting place. And that's the end of Satan's Doorknob's Comment. Now, I did indeed find Satan's Doorknob's Comment helpful because it and the quotes from Malcolm Kendrick's books confirmed my suspicions about the source of some of the factual errors in AMD's post on statins. So I replied thus, quote, Thank you for contributing, Mr. Doorknob, and I hope I haven't misgendered you. This is exactly the kind of calm, rational discussion of evidence, claims and counterclaims that I was hoping to provoke with my comment. Your first excerpt from Malcolm Kendrick's books is the perfect illustration of the game of Chinese whispers that has been played with Ansel Key's work, starting with a book written by Gary Taubes in 2007 called Good Calories, Bad Calories, in which Taubes conflated the Six-Country Study with the Seven-Country Study. The errors that Taubes made were then rehashed by Nina Teicholz, and since then have been repeated on countless blogs and popular books. Malcolm Kendrick has unfortunately rehashed this exact same argument in his book, despite it being previously disclosed mantled by several authors. You can read the full and very interesting story in a white paper titled Ansel Keys and the Seven Country Study, an evidence-based response to revisionist histories, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode. But here is a brief version, which I'll break up into separate answers for easier readability. Now, before I go any further, I want to stress that Dr. Malcolm Kendrick has been a consistent voice of reason throughout the entire manufactured COVID crisis, and his blog, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this episode, is well worth reading. But the fact that, after delving deep into the evidence, I agree with him on the damage wrought by bad COVID policy and dangerous medicines doesn't mean that I do or should take everything he says on nutrition and cardiovascular disease as gospel truth. Instead, as Feynman urged, I subject his claims to... The same blowtorch as anyone else's. That's what I did in reply to Satan's doorknob. You can read the comment thread in its original form. I've linked to it in the post accompanying this podcast episode. But in this episode, I'm going to be presenting the arguments that I made in that comment thread in an easier to listen to format with just a little bit of light editing for clarity, some additional points that I neglected to include. And if you have a look at the post accompanying this podcast episode, you'll see that I've also been able to include some images that I couldn't embed in the Substack comment section. So what I'm going to do is to pick out each of the Malcolm Kendrick quotes from Satan's Doorknobs comment and then give my response. Here's quote number one. By the way, I have linked to the archive.org version of Malcolm Kendrick's book, The Great Cholesterol Con, in the post to this podcast episode, so you can read along and verify what I'm about to say. So here's the quote from Kendrick's book. Quote, Ancel Keys and his famous seven countries study. Keys looked at saturated fat consumption in seven countries and found a straight line relationship between heart disease, cholesterol levels and saturated fat intake. The seven countries were, and this was as mentioned before, Italy, Greece, the former Yugoslavia, Netherlands, Finland. Finland. Finland to USA and Japan. Why these particular seven countries? He could have chosen another seven and demonstrated the exact opposite. Here are my seven. So once again he repeats Finland and the Netherlands and adds Israel, Germany, Switzerland, France and Sweden. What do you mean I can't choose my own countries? That's not fair. Keys did. End quote. Here's my response to that first quote, part one, the persistent conflation of the six countries graph and the seven countries study. In 1953, Keyes published a paper titled Atherosclerosis, a Problem in Newer Public Health, and I've linked to this particular paper in the post accompanying this podcast episode. On page 17 of this 22-page paper, which presented a wide assortment of comparative data on heart disease in various countries, there is a graph representing deaths from degenerative heart disease plotted against the percentage of calories derived from fat that was total fat without regard to saturated versus unsaturated. And I've reproduced that graph in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Now, there are six countries on that graph, not seven, six, and they are Japan, Italy, England and Wales, which was considered as one country, Australia, Canada and the US. And hence, it's often described as a six-country study, even though it was barely more than a sketch of ecological data and certainly does not qualify as a study. These six countries were selected because they collected both dietary data and vital statistics in comparable ways. Now, this was way before ICD codes, standardised death certificate coding throughout the world. The dietary data that Keyes used to produce this graph were national food balance data from 1949, supplied by the Food and Agriculture Association, or FAO, which is an arm of the United Nations. Post-war food rationing was still in place in some of these countries, which is important because several researchers had noted a drop in coronary heart disease deaths during World War II, which correlated with food rationing and or famines and blockades induced by hostilities. It's important to point out that this was an ecological analysis, that is, a comparison of disease rates in different locations at a single time point with a potential causative factor, which is considered a hypothesis-generating exercise. This is exactly how Keyes presented it in his paper, as you can clearly see by reading the text before and after this figure. And again, just go to the Keyes article, which I've linked to in the post Company's podcast episode to verify this for yourself. In 1957, Yerushalmi and Hillebo published a critique of Keyes 1953 paper their paper was called "Fat in the Diet and Mortality from Heart Disease: A Methodologic Note," and in this paper, they accused Keys of selecting countries with data that supported his hypothesis and ignoring countries whose data didn't support it. They claimed that data from 22 countries was available and presented those data in a graph, which again I've included in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Now, among the countries which Yerushalmi and Hillabo claimed Keys had intentionally excluded were Finland. Israel, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, France and Sweden, which is what makes it clear to me that Kendrick is drawing on the Torbes and Teicholz trope rather than choosing his own countries, whether or not he acknowledges this in his book. However, the data used by Yerushalmi and Hillabo were from 1951 to 53, that is several years after the data keys used, by which time post-war food restrictions were largely over. There are other reasons why Keyes used the data from the six countries to produce his graph, and these are discussed at length in pages 24 to 29 of the white paper that I mentioned previously, Ansel Keyes and the Seven Countries Study, An Evidence-Based Response to Revisionist Histories, so I won't go on about these now. Instead, I encourage you to, to read the paper and decide for yourself whether Keys rationale was legitimate. Furthermore, Kendrick is incorrect in stating that if the data from Israel, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, France and Sweden had been included on Keyes graph, then they would show the opposite relationship between dietary fat intake and heart disease to the one that Keyes proposed. There is still a visible positive correlation between these two factors if you add these additional countries, but it is weaker than the one that Keyes graphed from the data available to him in 1953. Now, the second part of my response specifically regards the seven-country study. So, unlike the simple hypothesis-generating exercise of 1953, the seven-country study, which included Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia, the Netherlands, Finland, USA, and Japan, while the 6 countries graph included Japan, Italy, England, and Wales, Australia, Canada, and the U.S., was, as Satan's doorknob noted, a long-running, prospective, multi-country cohort study. Key's team at the University of Minnesota established strict protocols to ensure reliable and consistent data, trained the researchers from each country in these protocols, and then sent them back to their home countries to conduct the data collection. The description of the conduct of the seven-country study, beginning on page 9 of the white paper "Ansel Keys and the Seven-Country Study, gives a good sense of the scope, magnitude, and thoroughness of the process. Teams of researchers in the field conducted measurements of blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and BMI. Performed electrocardiograms and glucose tolerance tests, took medical, smoking and physical activity histories, collected seven-day diet recall diaries, backed up with seven-day weighed food records, and even conducted chemical analysis of foods eaten by participants. Strict diagnostic coding for disease events and cause of death was applied to make sure that results from each study centre were comparable. Unfortunately, the U.S. cohort of the study was discontinued early because of a lack of funding—a problem which plagued the researchers throughout planning and implementation. Contrary to the admittedly perfectly reasonable speculation of Satan's doorknob, there were no industries keen to fund this study. The Seven Country Study has generated hundreds of scientific publications, and I strongly encourage you to browse through them by going to the Seven Country Study website, and I've linked to that in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Quote number two from Kendrick, and this is from his book, The Clot Thickens. Quote, have you ever heard of the Minnesota Coronary Study? Actually, it's not called that. It was the Minnesota Coronary Experiment or the Sydney Diet Heart Study. Most haven't. Both date to the early 1970s and were not published for decades. They only saw the light of day due to dogged investigators finding the original data. Both studies, done to high standards, showed that replacing saturated fat with unsaturated led to worse outcomes. And guess who was the lead on the former study? I think it is important to mention that the lead investigator of the Minnesota coronary experiment study was the one and only Ansel Keys. I wonder why the study was not published, end quote. And now my response. The Minnesota coronary experiment was originally intended to be a long-running intervention trial in which dietary saturated fats, primarily from animal products, were almost entirely replaced with linoleic acid-rich corn oil. It enrolled residents of one nursing home and six state mental hospitals, a total of 9,423 participants, which was a number close to the 10,000 participants that investigators had calculated would be required in order to reach statistical significance. However, the deinstitutionalization movement, which resulted in the closure of many mental hospitals and discharge of long-term patients into the community, caused the failure of this study. Almost three-quarters of participants were lost within the first year, and only about half of the remaining patients remained enrolled in the study for a full three years. With so few participants left, the study had no hope of reaching statistical significance. However, Kendrick is incorrect in claiming that the results of the Minnesota coronary experiment did not, quote, see the light of day, End quote, until the BMJ report published in 2016. These findings were indeed published in 1989 in a paper titled Test of Effect of Lipid Lowering by Diet on Cardiovascular Risk, the Minnesota Coronary Survey, which I've linked to in the post to this podcast episode, with frank acknowledgement that the study failed to show benefit of the intervention for cardiovascular events, cardiovascular deaths, or total mortality. Kendrick is also incorrect in stating that Ansel Keyes was the lead investigator. The BMJ article states that Ivan France was the principal investigator, and France was the lead author of the 1989 paper, while Keyes had no authorship credit. Neither I, nor Malcolm Kendrick, nor anybody else knows why the additional data contained in the 2016 BMJ report, which was titled Reevaluation of the Traditional Diet-Heart Hypothesis, Analysis of Recovered Data from Minnesota Coronary Experiment 1968-73, why these data were not published, because no reason was ever given by the investigators, to the best of my knowledge. Kendrick's obvious implication that key suppressed publication of these data is, as far as I know, completely unfounded. Kendrick is also incorrect in stating that, quote, replacing saturated fat with unsaturated led to worse outcomes, end quote, in this study. The BMJ article states that there was, quote, no mortality benefit for the intervention group in the full randomized cohort or for any pre-specified subgroup, end quote. In other words, there was no difference in outcomes. The finding of, quote, 22% higher risk of death for each 30 milligram per deciliter, that's that's in Australian measures, a point a 0.78 millimol per litre reduction in serum cholesterol, end quote, applied equally to both the control and intervention groups, as is made clear on page 9 of this study. Quote, In survival analyses, there was a robust association between decreasing serum cholesterol and increased risk of death, and this association did not differ between the intervention and control group. Quote. In other words, participants whose cholesterol levels fell the most over the course of the study were the most likely to die, regardless of whether they were in the dietary intervention group or the control group. That's intriguing. Let's read on. Quote, among both groups combined, a 30 milligram per deciliter or 0.78 millimole per liter decrease in serum cholesterol was associated with 22% higher risk of death from any cause with a hazard ratio of 1.22, that is a 22% higher risk of dying if your cholesterol fell by that much, based on a Cox model adjusted for baseline serum cholesterol, age, sex, adherence to diet, BMI, and systolic blood pressure. The higher risk of death associated with decreased serum cholesterol seems to be driven by the subgroup aged 65 or older. Among participants who were older than 65 at baseline, a 30 mg per deciliter decrease in serum cholesterol was associated with a 35% higher risk of death, whereas among people aged under 65 at baseline, there was no relation between the change in serum cholesterol and death." The most plausible explanation for the association between declining cholesterol and increased risk of death in older people but not in younger people is most likely the terminal decline in cholesterol that occurs as death approaches. A study called Trajectory of Total Cholesterol in the Last Years of Life Over Age 80 Years, cohort study of 99,758 participants, found that elderly people with the lowest cholesterol levels were the most likely to die within the study period, regardless of whether they were treated with statins or not. And in fact, those not treated with statins but with low cholesterol were the most likely to die. I've reproduced a chart illustrating this from the study in the post this podcast episode. Another quote from that study, compared with total cholesterol values of between 4.5 and 5.4 millimoles per litre, total cholesterol values of under 3 millimoles per litre were associated with higher mortality the statin-treated hazard ratios were 1.53 or a 53% higher risk of death. The hazard ratios for those not treated were 1.41 or a 41% higher risk of death. A secular decline in total cholesterol values accelerated in the last two years of life. In the last quarter of follow-up, the adjusted odds of a total cholesterol under 3 millimoles per litre for those who died compared with surviving participants were 3.33, that is a roughly 430% higher risk of death for people in that cholesterol bracket who were not on statins, and 1.88, which is a near doubling of risk for statin-treated participants, end quote. And again, I've included a figure from that study in the post accompanying this podcast episode, and you can see clearly from this figure a very steep decline in serum cholesterol levels in the two years before death in people who were not taking statins. There is a decline in cholesterol level in the two years before death in people who were on statins, but it's not as steep. Another quote from that study, conclusions, total cholesterol values show a terminal decline in the last years of life. Reverse causation may contribute to the association of lower total cholesterol with higher mortality in non-randomized studies, end quote. Reverse causation means, at least in this case, that declining cholesterol is the consequence of the deteriorating function that leads to death rather than the cause of death. Anemia, chronic inflammation, chronic renal and adrenal failure, nutrient deficiencies and hyperthyroidism, which are all common conditions in the final stages of life, all lead to reduced cholesterol production. Cancer, which is, of course, another leading cause of death, especially in elderly people, is also associated with reduced serum cholesterol, but cancer cells require cholesterol for growth, and hence the relationship between low serum cholesterol levels and cancer is also attributable primarily to reverse causation. The final comment I would make on the Minnesota coronary experiment is that this study used an intervention, namely replacement of saturated fats with corn oil, much of it in foods that contained high levels of trans fats, which are now known to be the most dangerous type of fats with regards to coronary artery disease, that is not advocated by any school of nutrition thought these days. So it has essentially no relevance to the modern diet wars. What are the implications of these errors in Kendrick's books? Do these errors and flaws in Kendrick's works invalidate his entire hypothesis regarding the cause of coronary artery disease? No, of course not. Like any of us, he can be wrong about some things and right about others. Likewise, the fact that Kendrick makes incorrect statements about Ansel Keyes doesn't mean that Keyes was a saint or that everything he ever said or wrote should be read as holy writ. At least, though, Keyes appears to have displayed the characteristics lauded by Richard Feynman. A quote from the white paper Ansel Keys and the Seventh Country Study. According to colleagues, however, Keyes routinely did with such observations, that is, observations of an association between total dietary fat intake and heart disease, what good scientists should do, turned them into testable hypotheses, not immutable convictions. He proceeded to test this hypothesis himself, and concluded long before the dawn of the low-fat diet era, the total dietary fat quantity was unimportant, while the sources and quality of fat were important. The written record and other first-hand accounts indicate that A, Keyes almost without fail carefully avoided any temptation to overstate the significance of his findings in published work, and B, he based his impressions and conclusions on the overall mass of evidence, not just the seven-country study. Importantly, his views evolved over the course of his career in accord with the evolving evidence base, end quote. Conversely, when I observe poor research techniques, misinterpretations of study findings, and copious use of informal logical fallacies, including ad hominem, straw man, neglected aspects, and post hoc, then I know that I need to proceed with even more caution that I would usually employ when assessing a source of information. Kendrick's misstatements relating to Ansel Keys alert me that every statement that he makes has to be double-checked, and every source that he cites has to be read carefully in order to verify that it says what he claims it does." As you've probably noticed if you've read my posts, I personally am quite obsessive when it comes to checking sources and triangulating information. My own articles are all densely referenced because I want my readers to be able to check the sources of information that I'm drawing on so that they can decide for themselves whether my interpretation is correct or not. I find it very frustrating when other authors don't do this but instead simply make statements without providing me with any means by which I can verify them. The take-home message. If we're going to drag ourselves out of the current dark age, we need to move past both our own egoic attachment to cherished ideas and the primitive impulse to divide down tribal lines of those whose ideas we identify with versus those whose ideas are anathema to us. All ideas, purported facts, hypotheses and theories need to be subjected to rigorous interrogation. It's a good practice to regularly expose yourself to ideas with which you disagree, so you can challenge your own beliefs and understanding. You should also subject the ideas with which you agree to scrutiny by searching for facts that contradict them or alternative explanations. And that goes for my articles, by the way. I encourage you to let me know if you think I've got something wrong click on the links to source material that I provide and decide for yourself whether I'm representing it accurately. Of course, I expect you to present your disputation calmly and with supporting evidence. We need to help each other to practice becoming more skilled, inquiring critical thinkers so we can generate the high-quality ideas necessary for us to thrive and perhaps even to survive the unprecedented challenges that we currently face. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.